Hello, my name is Amanda Ziegler and our gathering scripture today comes from John 6 verses 61 through 69. Jesus was aware that his disciples were complaining, so he said to them, Does this offend you? Then what will you think if you see the Son of Man ascend to heaven again? The Spirit alone gives eternal life. Human effort accomplishes nothing. And the very words I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But some of you do not believe me, for Jesus knew the beginning which once didn't believe, and he knew who would betray him. Then he said, That is why I said that people can't come to me unless the Father gives them to me. At this point, many of his disciples turned away and deserted him. Then Jesus turned to the twelve and said, Are you going to leave? Simon Peter replied, Lord, to whom would we go? You have the words that give eternal life. We believe and we know that you are the Holy One of God. Hey Grace242, not long after it was published in 2012, I listened to the audiobook American Sniper on my drives to and from Chicago while I was in seminary. In the book, Chris Kyle recounts his life training for and then serving four tours as a Navy SEAL sniper. In chapter two of the book, Kyle narrates his experience training to become a Navy SEAL. The training is officially called Basic Underwater Demolition slash SEAL, or BUDS for short. BUDS is perhaps the toughest training found anywhere on the globe, which is underscored by the near 90% dropout rate. Here's how Kyle introduces you to BUDS in Chapter 2. Drop! 100 push-ups now! 220-some bodies hit the asphalt and started pumping. The instructor didn't even bother to come out of his office inside the building a short distance away. His deep voice carried easily out the hall into the courtyard where we were gathered. More push-ups! Give me 40! 40! My arms hadn't quite started to burn yet when I heard a strange hissing noise. I glanced up to see what was going on and was rewarded with a blast of water in my face. Some of the other instructors had appeared and were working us over with fire hoses. Anyone stupid enough to look up got hosed. There's a particularly difficult week in Bud's training. Chris Kyle's week began with all the candidates enjoying pizza and a movie marathon. Their relaxation was abruptly ended and the week officially started when instructors burst into the room firing blanks and flashbangs. A week of constant physical activity, sitting on the beach day and night while the waves crash over you and instructors spraying water in your face from a fire hose had begun. Kyle explains that BUDS training is intentionally difficult in order to weed people out. Navy SEALs are deployed into some of the most difficult missions which require the best soldiers. An article on NavySeals.com sums up the reason for the difficulty of BUDS. Because the SEAL community is so small, the instructors know that they will likely serve in future combat operations with those trainees who pass. Therefore, they rigorously test and critically assess which trainees have the SEAL ethos, physical ability, and character to save their and other teammates' lives. I bring up the Navy SEALs because their MO is to leave the many for the few. They want to sift through the many to find the few who have what it takes to do these difficult missions. The SEALs intentionally raise the bar as high as it can go with the purpose of sifting out the many. The few who remain are the ones who they know will get the job done. The SEALs leave the many for the few. It may come as a shock that Jesus has a similar MO. He leaves the many for the few albeit not through push-ups or fire hoses to the face, 
Rather, Jesus leaves the many for the few as he raises the bar to eat his body and drink his blood. Look with me at John chapter 6, and we're going to cover the whole chapter today, but we're going to start by reading verses 1 through 15. Let's read this very well-known story. After this, Jesus crossed over to the far side of the Sea of Galilee, also known as the Sea of Tiberias. A huge crowd kept following him wherever he went, because they saw his miraculous signs as he healed the sick. Then Jesus climbed a hill and sat down with his disciples around him. It was nearly time for the Jewish Passover celebration. Jesus soon saw a huge crowd of people coming to look for him. Turning to Philip, he asked, Where can we buy bread to feed all these people? He was testing Philip, for he already knew what he was going to do. Philip replied, Even if we worked for months, we wouldn't have enough money to feed them. Then Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. There's a young boy here with five barley loaves and two fish. But what good is that with this huge crowd? Tell everyone to sit down, Jesus said. So they all sat down on the grassy slopes. The men alone numbered about 5,000. Then Jesus took the loaves, gave thanks to God, and distributed them to the people. Afterward, he did the same with the fish, and they all ate as much as they wanted. After everyone was full, Jesus told his disciples, Now gather the leftovers so that nothing is wasted. So they picked up the pieces and filled twelve baskets with scraps left by the people who had eaten from the five barley loaves. When the people saw him do this miraculous sign, they exclaimed, Surely he is the prophet we have been expecting! When Jesus saw that they were ready to force him to be their king, he slipped away into the hills by himself. This is one of Jesus' well-known miracles his feeding of the 5,000. But pay attention to the crowds that are following him. Look at 6 verse 2. A huge crowd kept following him wherever he went because they saw his miraculous signs as he healed the sick. Verse 2 flat out gives us a window into the motivation of the crowds for being with Jesus. They're following him because of the signs that they've seen him do. And verse 14 underscores this motivation. Jesus does the miracle of feeding them all by multiplying the boys five loaves and two fish. Let's look at verses 14 and 15. When the people saw him do this miraculous sign, they exclaimed, Surely he is the prophet we have been expecting. When Jesus saw that they were ready to force him to be their king, he slipped away into the hills by himself. The crowd was so impressed with Jesus's miracle that they wanted to crown him king right then and there. But this is not the type of king that Jesus is. So he retreats, he leaves the out point of the triangle to retreat into the up part of the triangle. Jesus retreats and the disciples eventually get sick of waiting for Jesus to come back. So they take the boat out into the Sea of Galilee to head back to home base in Capernaum. But on their trip home, they get caught in a storm, and here's where another iconic moment takes place. Jesus walks out on the water to join them in the boat, and as soon as Jesus steps into the boat, he miraculously transports them back to Capernaum. The next morning, the crowd who had stayed along the shore of the Sea of Galilee where Jesus had done his miracle, follows the boating route the disciples had taken the day previous. They locate Jesus and his disciples near Capernaum, and Jesus, knowing the condition of their hearts, calls out the motivation of the crowd. Let's read John chapter 6 again, and we'll read verses 26 and 27 this time. Jesus replied, I tell you the truth. You want to be with me because I fed you, not because you understood the miraculous signs. But don't be so concerned about perishable things like food. 
Spend your energy seeking the eternal life that the Son of Man can give you. For God the Father has given me the seal of his approval. Jesus calls out the motivations of the crowds. He says, you're only here for the miracles. Jesus says, you only want to see more signs and wonders. Jesus says, you're only here because you got a free lunch out of me yesterday and you got it by way of the supernatural. Back when Morgan used to teach early childhood special ed at Rosendale Primary, the teacher in the classroom next to her was infamous for keeping food too long. This teacher would open up her lunch bag and pull out a container of something and she'd lift up the lid and you know start smelling it and then she'd be like, hmm, I can't remember when I made this or I wonder if this is still good yet. And Morgan is thinking all along, if you're questioning it, then just throw that stuff away. If you're not sure, that's probably an indicator that it's bad or you ought not take the chance and just throw that away. Why do you hang on to food so long? And then wonder, I wonder if this is still good yet. Throw that away. Jesus is turning it around on the crowds and saying, stop worrying about temporary things like food and start worrying about eternal things like eternal life that comes from me. Jesus is directing the crowd's attention away from the things that he can do, in this case, signs and wonders. And he's directing the crowd's attention toward who he is, the Messiah, the Savior. But the crowd really doesn't get it. Look at their response to Jesus in verse 28. They replied, we want to perform God's works too. What should we do? They really don't get it. Jesus is like, stop worrying about temporary things like food and instead worry about eternal life that comes from me. Worry about who I am, the Savior, the one who gives you eternal life. And the crowds are like, but how do we do signs and wonders? <laughs> Look at Verse 29, this is Jesus' response to the ignorance of the crowd. Jesus told them, This is the only work God wants from you. Believe in the one he has sent. Jesus again is trying to take their focus off of the works, off of the signs and wonders, and to place their focus onto his identity, who he is. I am the Son of Man. I am the Savior. Through me are eternal things like eternal life. Now look at their response. Again, in verse 30, the crowds answered, show us a miraculous sign if you want us to believe in you. What can you do? Ugh. I can just imagine the frustration of Jesus in this moment. That the crowds are like, show us a sign. We're here for a sign. Come on, do the trick, do the trick. And Jesus is like, I don't care about tricks. You're only here for tricks. Stop worrying about tricks. Instead, do you realize who I am? That I am the Savior? I am the Messiah? And the crowds are like, can you do the trick again? Ugh. Now the back and forth with the crowds and Jesus continues on through the chapter. And remember, this is all on the heels of Jesus doing his miracle of feeding the 5,000. So food continues to play a central role in the discussion, which as a side note, makes perfect sense for humans, right? We love food. I mean, you know me, I love food. And so it makes sense that they're thinking food, food, food. This guy can give me food, right? So food becomes this main staple of the discussion that they're having. But there's a fundamental disconnect between Jesus and the crowd. The crowd keeps thinking about bread they saw multiplied yesterday, whereas Jesus is pointing to himself, to his identity as the bread of life. So the crowd is thinking about real, actual, physical bread, whereas Jesus is speaking in metaphors of himself as the bread of life. The crowd wants to see Jesus do another trick, but Jesus wants people to believe in him as the Messiah. 
The crowd wants another miracle and perhaps a free lunch to go with it. And Jesus wants people to recognize who he is, the Savior. But the crowds cannot do it. They cannot recognize who he is. Look at verses 35, and then we'll read 41 and 42. Verse 35, Jesus replied, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry again. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Then the people began to murmur in disagreement because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, isn't this Jesus, the son of Joseph? We know his father and mother. How can he say, I came down from heaven? Jesus says, I am the bread of life, which in this moment, the crowds actually kind of get a glimmer of understanding in the fact that they recognize that Jesus is making a divine claim, that Jesus is saying, I am God. And as soon as people start to wonder or realize that Jesus is saying, I am God, they get angry because all they can see Jesus as is a young boy growing up in Mary and Joseph's household. And they're like, isn't this the carpenter's son? How dare he say that he is the Messiah? There's no possible way that he can do that. The back and forth between Jesus and the crowd continues until it comes to a head in verses 53 and 54. So Jesus said again, I tell you the truth, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you cannot have eternal life within you. But anyone who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise that person at the last day. The Navy SEALs intentionally raise the bar as high as it can go. And throughout this conversation with the crowds, Jesus has been notching that bar upwards with the crowds. In verse 27, Jesus says, don't concern yourself with temporary things like food. Instead, concern yourself with eternal life that comes from me. And then he notches the bar up a little higher in verse 29 when he says, believe in me. He notches the bar up again when he makes his claim to divinity in verse 35 saying, I am the bread of life. And then he raises the bar as high as it can go in verses 53 and 54 when he says, if you believe in me, you will eat my flesh and drink my blood. Now we have a word eat in verse 53, and we have another word eat in verse 54. The Greek word for eat in verse 53 is estheo, which is this stock expression for the natural function of human self-preservation. You eat to stay alive. That's estheo in verse 54. And then in verse 55, the Greek word is trogo, and this word is different because it means to chew, and it's implied that you chew with loud sounds. It's like smacking. I don't remember how old I was, but I remember staying overnight at my cousin's house, and he and I were the same age. And I just remember at one point in my overnight, I was eating a meal with my cousin, his other siblings, and his mom and dad. And so I was eating a meal with their family, and I just had this moment where all of a sudden I realized everybody is smacking while they're eating, especially my cousin who was my age. He was like the worst. You know, you just look around the table and you can hear the smacking, especially my cousin. His mouth is practically gaping open as he sits there. I mean, it was like practically that bad. Like you're actually seeing the lump of food in his mouth as he, you know, opens up his mouth to smack. And in that moment, I mean, I don't remember how old I was, but in that moment in seeing the smacking on a large scale, I realized no wonder my parents get on me about smacking sometimes because they would, you know, smack me figuratively for smacking, right? They'd be like, stop smacking, close your mouth when you chew. And sometimes we've had to do that with our kids. And, and now you see why it's, it's really gross when all these people are sitting at a table and they're, you know, smacking away. I talk about these Greek words because think about 
being the crowd in that moment, hearing in verse 53, Jesus say, eat me, in the same way you would eat food for sustenance, eat me for sustenance. They're like, what? And then in verse 54, Jesus is saying, eat me, chew on my body, munch my body with loud noises, smack on me. So like, eat Jesus, smack on Jesus. There's a complete disconnect. I mean, at best, the crowd is just thinking, I'm really not sure what this guy is talking about. And at worst, the crowd is thinking, this guy is a cannibal. He's advocating cannibalism. This is like a cult. Why would I want to join this guy? And so there is this huge disconnect. And some of his own followers, the bar is so high that some of his own followers don't even understand what he's trying to say. Look at verse 60. Many of his disciples said, this is very hard to understand. How can anyone accept it? How can anyone accept eating your body, drinking your blood, munching your body, munching your blood and making a whole bunch of smacking sounds while they do it? Jesus has raised the bar so high that even the disciples are struggling with this call to eat and smack on Jesus's body and blood. But Jesus keeps the bar in its tip-top position. Look at verses 61 to 63. Jesus was aware that his disciples were complaining. So he said to them, does this offend you? Then what will you think if you see the Son of Man ascend to heaven again? The Spirit alone gives eternal life. Human effort accomplishes nothing. And the very words I have spoken to you are spirit and life. Jesus points up at the bar in its tippy-top position and says, does this offend you? Because there is a cost to being one of my disciples. There is a cost to following me. The bar to become a Navy SEAL is so high that there's a 90% dropout rate. The cost of following Jesus is high, which leads to a dropout rate. Look at John 6, verse 66. Oh boy, 666. You know, nothing good is happening with a number like that. Let's look at John 6. 66. At this point, many of his disciples turned away and deserted him. Notice that it says some of his disciples, other translations say some of his followers deserted him. So it wasn't just the crowd that turned away, but it was people who actually considered themselves Jesus' followers who also turned away in this moment. Now, none of the 12 turned away. Look at 67 through 69. Then Jesus turned to the twelve and asked, Are you also going to leave? Simon Peter replied, Lord, to whom would we go? You have the words that give eternal life. We believe and we know you are the Holy One of God. This is just an excellent Peter moment. You know, we get bad Peter and we get amazing Peter, and this is amazing Peter. But none of the twelve turned away, but the crowd and even some who considered themselves to be Jesus' followers slash disciples in that crowd even turn away because the bar is so high. Now, why do I take so much time walking us all the way through John chapter 6? Because I think John chapter 6 shows us the MO of Jesus. And it's this counterintuitive, quite unexpected MO. And that MO is that Jesus leaves the many for the few. This is one of the counterintuitive truths of Scripture. You know, folks, I think you've gotten to this point where you've heard me say that word, counterintuitive, a lot. And that's one of the reasons why 
I just love Jesus and why I believe the gospel is true because in so many ways, on so many levels, it just flies in the face of what we would think as humans. It takes what we normally tend to think in our own patterns and ways of doing things and just completely flips them upside down. That's one of the reasons why I love the gospel. And this MO of Jesus, to leave the many for the few, is one of those counterintuitive gospel core type truths. John chapter 6 opens with Jesus feeding the 5,000. And then in the middle of the chapter, we see Jesus testing the crowds, notching the bar higher and higher, cutting through the crowd's motivations. You might almost say Jesus is pruning the crowd in the middle of chapter 6. And then at the end of chapter 6, everyone has deserted him except for the 12. He leaves the many for the few. He prunes down a crowd of 5,000, and that's only counting men, 5,000 men, all the way down to the nub of his 12 most committed disciples. Jesus leaves the many for the few. This is counterintuitive. This is not how we think. I think there are personal takeaways, and then there's one corporate takeaway for us from John chapter 6. Leaving the many for the few is core to discipleship. Just think about it at a practical level for a second. If you're searching for a person of peace or people of peace, which is what Jesus did, if you're searching for those people, you are searching for the few. You are leaving the many to find the few who are open to you, the few who are willing to receive what you have to give. And you are choosing to invest in those few. You are leaving the many and you are choosing to invest in those few. In searching for a person of peace or for people of peace, you are also searching for someone who is willing to pay the cost, and few will pay this cost. Matthew 16, 24 is essentially a summary verse of the entirety of John chapter 6. Let's look at Matthew 16, verse 24. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If any of you wants to be my follower, you must turn from your selfish ways, take up your cross, and follow me. In John chapter 6, Jesus keeps notching that bar up higher and higher. And in Matthew 16, 24, Jesus is pointing to that bar in its tippy-top position. And he's saying, the cost of following me is your life. It costs your life to follow me. Because if you're following me, you're following me into my death. And so to follow me, you need to give up your life. You need to stop living for yourself. You need to die to yourself and your selfishness and come find your life in me, your eternal life. This costs your life. Following Jesus costs everything because Jesus gave up his life. Jesus gave up everything. So in the same way, we give up everything for Jesus. We die to what we want to supplant that with what Jesus wants. Following Jesus costs your life. It's the ultimate price. There's a high cost to following Jesus. And naturally, when there is that high of a bar, just like in the Navy SEALs, 90% dropout rate, naturally, when there is a high cost of following Jesus, this will appeal to the very few. You are leaving the many for the few when you look at the cost of following Jesus. Our mission statement here at Grace 242 is being, making, and multiplying disciples. Let's just think about that first word, being, for a second. As you seek to be a disciple of Jesus, are you being a disciple and living into the reality that the cost of following Jesus is death? The cost of following Jesus is giving up your life? It is laying down your fleshly desires? It is laying down what you want 
in exchange for what Jesus wants for you, that you are making Jesus your greatest treasure and that you are willing to die to all these other pursuits in your life to pursue him and him alone. That's the call, folks. It's a high bar that he says, if you're going to come after me, follow me into death to yourself because true life is found in me. But you need to die to the life that you're living first. You're never going to want me if you're still enamored with the life that you're living. You got to die to that life and you'll find true life in me. Are you living that way? Or is following Jesus just sort of another activity that you're adding into your life? Are you sort of exercising control over your life and saying, I sort of have my life the way I want it, and so I'm just going to take a little from the following Jesus buffet and add that into my life? Or are you taking your life as an offering and sacrificing that to the Lord and saying, I'm dying to myself, Jesus, because I want the life that you have for me. Is that the way you are being a disciple? And then if you think about the making word of a disciple really quick, if you have a person of peace that you're pouring into, praise the Lord. But remember, the cost is death. And so as you pour into your disciple, make no bones about it. This bar is high. This requires death. It requires you to give up your life. Don't give into that temptation to want to make it a little easier. You will actually stunt your own growth and stunt your disciples' growth if you try to lower that bar down again and make it a little easier. Now, it's far better for you to say, yeah, this is what it costs. Jesus gave it up. Jesus gave up his life. And he expects us to give up our lives, to die to ourselves. But what we find on the other end of that is true, abundant life. Back to the being word for a second. As you are a disciple, seek to be a disciple. Are you following after Jesus regardless of the circumstances in your life? Or are you only following after Jesus when things are going really well, when you're flying high, when life is easy? Or are you still willing to follow him even when he seems distant and even when your life is difficult and even when you experience sorrow and pain and tragedy? And that also, if you go to the making word, that also would have a huge impact on the person you're pouring into. Can you imagine following Jesus through the most difficult time in your life and your disciple has a front row seat to see how you handle that? It's an amazing gift that you can give to your disciple simply to follow Jesus, even through the hard times. That's the personal takeaway. And I just want a quick touch on the corporate takeaway because the personal one is so much more important. But the corporate takeaway is that by and large, the American church does the exact opposite of Jesus. Jesus's MO is to leave the many for the few. Whereas the American church's MO is to leave the few for the many. The American church spends a lot of time and resources trying to attract the crowd. Whereas Jesus says to that crowd, eat my body and drink my blood. And in doing so, everybody deserted him except for his 12. While Jesus is raising the cost of following him, the American church is doing its best to lower the cost of following him. The American church wants people to feel comfortable. The American church is leery of challenging folks or calling out sin for fear that, oh, that might make people mad and then turn them away. Jesus says, believe in me. Whereas the American church says, come as consumers and receive the goods and services that the church has to offer. Jesus leaves the many for the few. I'll simply close this message with a quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer's book, Discipleship, where he says, When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. I'll see you next week, Grace 242, for the final week of our Sense series. Love you.